going back and watching those um, sea dramas and thinking, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, mm-hmm. these are so ridiculous. And then by the end of summer, feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to know how it ends because I can't <laughs> leave before I know. <laughs> so just the kind of bi-culture, right? Hello and welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American Pacific Islander women on our ethnic journey and leadership. I am your host, Vivian Mabuni, and we are so glad you're here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Someday is Here. Today's guest is Nancy Wong Yun, and she is a sociologist and a pop culture expert. I loved our conversation. Um, You may be familiar with Nancy. She has appeared on PBS, on BBC World TV, on Dr. Phil. She's written in the New York Times, Washington Post, the LA Times. She's also been a guest writer at Newsweek and Elle and HuffPost and Self. So she's been so many different places. And as the author of Real Inequality, um, she really explores the history of Hollywood actors and racism. So we have a really, really robust conversation. And what I appreciate about Nancy is she's she is a teacher at heart. She is an educator, and she explains and def- explains uh, concepts and lessons so well, um, relatable, authentic, and so um, thorough. And so I I can't wait for you to listen to our episode and learn from her. So welcome with me, Nancy. All right, welcome to season three of Someday is Here. And I am so thrilled for today's guest. Nancy Wong Yun is a sociologist, a pop culture expert. My daughter and I were watching a special Zoom pop-up for the PBS special um, on Asian American Asian American history on PBS. And um, when Nancy came on, I was like, Julia, this is Nancy. And someday she's going to be on the Sunday is Here podcast. And she's here today. So I'm thrilled. Um, as I expressed earlier in the introduction, uh, Nancy is just such an expert in so many things, especially pop culture and um, Oscars So White, that hashtag. And she has written a book, Real Inequality on Hollywood Actors and Racism. And so, Nancy, welcome to Someday is Here. <laughs> I'm excited to be here, Vivian. Thank you for having me. And that was such a very, very sweet and uh, honoring introduction. <laughs> I think I think we all have a, a lot to learn, you know, we're still learning. I think that's that's what makes um, an expert, actually, when someone is just realizing they don't know everything and it is a continuous learning process, especially pop culture, because that is ever-changing, um, mm-hmm. although racism doesn't change as quickly, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, my goodness. Yeah, well, we are taping right now in the midst of the second wave of this global pandemic. Um, And in Southern California, we're once again sheltering in place and things are closing and some things are opening and we don't know yet exactly what it's gonna look like in the fall for many of us. We're taking right now in the middle of summer. This will be releasing in the fall. But Nancy, from your vantage point, like can you speak into what, what you're seeing right now 
<sighs> wow. I am feeling, I think, a whole range of emotions, which a lot of people are feeling right now. I mean, I, there are days when I feel numb. There are days when I feel really sad and hopeless. Uh, there are days when I feel like, gosh, I'm really privileged to be able to have a job and and be relatively, you know, uh, well and healthy. So it's it's just, um, yeah. And also reading about all the, you know, racism. And of course, right now we have a kind of surge of support for Black Lives Matter in a, mm-hmm. in a not just a national but international way, which is really um, um, astonishing, actually. And mm-hmm. and I think that. Um, it's, I have so many emotions and feelings about that, you know, having, having done research and been talking about writing about racism, anti-racism for a very long time. It's, uh, it's, it's both, um, cool, but also like, you know, it has to take like a global pandemic, you know, and Mm -hmm. all of us sitting around contemplating life and death for, for us to think about kind of morality, I think reconsidering morality in a new way. And, um, yeah, and I think it's, it's just such a unique time. Um, but I, I think there's going to be so much stuff written and, and shown, I mean, movies, books are going to come out, uh, commentaries and, um, but it's, it's a time that's, uh, that's completely brand new in my lifetime. Right. And I think, I think being able to live through it and look back, we'll have, uh, we'll have a lot of reflections. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. I think about how, um, probably decades to come, generations to come, you know, our children's children will read about this time in the history and we're actually living in it. And because all of it's new, it's just all uncharted. So I feel like all of us are kind it kind of levels some of the playing field because we just don't really know. And for a country that has prided itself in seeming so such a leader and I, I feel like it's actually brought us in a healthy way to begin to view the world more globally and to realize that you know we are very dependent on one another and I, I think that's to me a picture of the importance of collective versus individual which is such you know eastern value of collective versus the Western value of individualism. And it's just, I feel like it's playing out even with the controversy with wearing masks or not wearing masks and how that plays out. So it's fascinating to me. And um, I'm just thankful that you are here to share your expertise. So I will, I'll turn the conversation and I would love to hear some of your ethnic journey. Like tell us what it was like for you growing up and your, your Asian American journey. Yeah, so I started uh, my journey, I guess, when I immigrated to the United States when I was around, I think I was around five or six. I mean, I kind of don't remember, which is a little weird, but I guess, you know, um, I remember the journey. I don't remember how old I was. It was right before first grade. And mm-hmm. I uh, I came, so I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, because <laughs> I think for the first time I'm thinking, like, Hmm, what would it have been like if I didn't leave Taiwan and, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and stayed and lived out my life there? And I don't think I've ever thought about that before um, the pandemic. And partly because Taiwan is doing really well in terms yeah. of public health. They're not under quarantine. Um, they, they have it all under control. They have public health. Anyway, so I, yeah, I was raised by my grandparents. My mother mm-hmm. left um, Taiwan to, to come to the United States actually when I was around six months old, and my dad left about two years old. So I was raised by my grandparents. 
And when I came to the United States, I uh, joined my father and, you know, it just was like, this was supposed to be, this is how it's supposed to be. Right. But now looking back, I was actually joining a complete stranger really um, to mm-hmm. live out the rest of my life. I mean, I, I was unknown to them. They were unknown to me really. Um, but you know, I, the dream was to make it in the United States, even though Taiwan is actually, you know, a first world country. I was like, why did we even come when things are actually okay there? But I, it was such a prestige. It was the, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of post 65 immigration wave of highly skilled. And it's like anybody who was anybody in Taiwan mm-hmm. wanted to come to the United States, you know, to mm-hmm. make wall beautiful country. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it was understood that once I was about to start school, that I will come and so that was the beginning of my journey. And I remember um, first grade coming into the classroom and my teacher, a white woman, was talking to me and I didn't know a word of English. And oh, she wow. just started raising her voice and yelling at me. And I knew that she thought I was just, you know, like stupid or something. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, at the, in that moment, I knew, I knew that she was wrong. Um, but yeah. I also knew that I was helpless in that situation. Wow. Did you have any siblings or was it just you coming over? No, I, I was uh, my mom and my father's only child. So yeah, so wow. I came by myself and, um, and yeah, so it was, I, I actually told my father, I think every day after school that I was suffering. <laughs> so right. yeah. I, I like literally told, I was, I guess I was at least self-reflexive enough to, <laughs> to think I'm in pain. It's, this sucks. So yeah, yeah, so it was a very traumatic experience of coming over and it was Long Beach. I immigrated to Long Beach. So there were actually mm-hmm. a lot of other, um, there were Southeast Asian refugees. It was actually very diverse. Um, mm. And I have like a picture of me in second grade. Like a, it was a birthday party that my second grade teacher gave to me because she had heard I never had a birthday party. Um, and so and so she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her I want to go to miniature golf and eat at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and she made it happen. It was It was a time when, Teachers could do wow. stuff with students, and there was no, mm-hmm. you know, fears of legality or anything. And and there, and she took photos. So I didn't have a lot of photos of me growing up in the states. It was it was my father was basically a single dad. We didn't live. My my parents basically were separated after my mother immigrated to the United States. And so I was with my single dad, and um, yeah, and just you know, it, there were no photos, but my teacher took this photo of me in second grade mm-hmm. at my birthday party, and it was like all these Asian kids and a couple of white kids, and it was a, uh, it was great. It was great. I still remember that party. I remember just um, just how loved I felt actually by my teacher, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, I I was looking for her forever, and it was like last year that it was through social media that I found her because I just put her name out there and, and wow. let Twitter kind of take Twitter and Facebook people. And uh, they found her and I was able to actually uh, talk with her and Aww. kind of reunite. And I was just bawling and crying and, oh, and she called herself. She, she's, she's also a white woman and she, she called herself my American mom. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, and uh, even though my mom is also American, but you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, so she was just, uh, yeah. And, you know, and it was just such an awesome reunion and, um, yeah, but that's, that's yeah. my, uh, kind of 
first introduction to the United States um, and, you know, having to learn, pick up English and learn it. And, and so I'm, I'm what's called a 1.5 generation. It's a very unique generation where um, you have, you actually have your formative years. So, you know, mm-hmm. psychologists talk about like kind of the first four years of your life or your formative years. And, um, and so the 1.5 generation generally come between kind of ages five and maybe 10, 11. And mm-hmm. so this generation is, you know, I remember what it was like being the dominant population. Like right. everybody looked like me, everybody sounded like me. Mm-hmm. And then coming to a country where I grow up also, you know, assimilating into this culture, but also remembering. So kind of having a bicultural understanding yeah. that is very unique to the 1.5 generation. And I know that mm-hmm. it's been very formative for me because I think it's given me um, a voice and a confidence in mm-hmm. ways that I think a lot of my um, even Asian American female friends who grew up here, who were born and raised here, a lot of times they, they feel very much the racism and the kind of um, diminishing, right, of our yeah. culture, of our race, of everything who we are. And I think that because I grew up in Taiwan, and also I spent my summers in Taiwan all the way mm-hmm. up to teenage years. So I maintained the language because I had to, mm-hmm. not because now it's like, ooh, immersion. I mean, that's what it was. I went back to Taiwan <laughs> to stay with my grandparents who are monolingual, you know, Mandarin speakers. And so mm-hmm. what, what people think of as like, oh, let's have this ex- special experience. You know, it was just like, that was just my life, right? So, so I remember mm-hmm. going back to Taiwan one summer and not even remembering Mandarin and then picking it up. And also like going back and watching those, um, see dramas and thinking, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, mm-hmm. these are so ridiculous. And then by the end of summer, feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to know how it ends because I can't <laughs> leave before I know. <laughs> so just the kind of bi-culture, right? You, you kind of mm-hmm. you realize that these, and also seeing the differences because of going back every summer, seeing Taiwan change over time from a child's right. perspective. Because when wow. I was young, everything was in Mandarin because, you know, the Kuomintang was in power there. Mm-hmm. And um, and then seeing that even the television stations where they had, you know, there were three stations um, when I was growing up. These are public stations. They were all in Mandarin. And then over mm-hmm. time, there was like one in Taiwanese, one in Mandarin, and then one in Hakanese. It was just like wow. this, this. You could see the political shifts through these cultural mm-hmm. changes. And, mm. and again, it was all from a child's perspective. Um, sure. And I still feel like I don't know enough about the politics in Taiwan. It's very complicated, right? Because we know yes. we we learn about U.S. history here. We learn about European history, some somewhat, yeah. but we know nothing about Asian history unless it's wars with the United States, right? So right. always as the enemy. So having zero, and I didn't actually go to college and take any Asian history, right? I took some Asian American studies courses, but nothing about Asia. So it's like there is this kind of I think feeling of you're not Asian enough in terms of mm-hmm. understanding your country of origin, right? Absolutely. And conversation. Even recently, um, I actually went to Taiwan this past winter mm-hmm. for vacation. And I've been thinking about, you know, I, my, my family came over um, during the communist revolution. My grandmother yeah. immigrated. My father was a child um, and they immigrated. So these are like, my father actually was a twice immigrant, right? Immigrated to mm-hmm. Taiwan from China as a child and then, yep. then to the United States as an adult. And, and they were very much identifying as Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we grew up, I grew up in Taiwan. We were called Waisaren, which is like outside province people. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so I, I guess I identified even in the United States as Chinese American. But yeah. recently I was thinking I should identify as Taiwanese American because that's the mm. only country I've ever known. But there's a right. lot of political and, you know, I don't speak Taiwanese. I didn't come over with the earlier waves of um, immigrants to Taiwan yeah. that actually are solid, solidly, you know, say we're ta- proudly Taiwanese. Yeah. But I, I yeah. was in Taiwan. <laughs> I started asking people, I asked a, a taxi driver, <laughs> can I identify as Taiwanese? <laughs> I was having this conversation <laughs> with him in Mandarin. I was like, could I identify as Taiwanese if I don't even speak Taiwanese? And he's like, of course you can. <laughs> <laughs> you were born here. Yeah. That is actually fascinating to me, Nancy, because my parents also were the twice immigrants. So they fled China before the communists, you know, went to school in Taiwan. They got their master's degrees in Hawaii, which is where they met and got married. But 65, you know, when the doors opened, they were the ones that came over. And it's been so interesting to me living here in Southern California, meeting Taiwanese who speak Taiwanese and the Jeremy Lins, you know, who are just like completely identify, go to a Taiwanese church or are very embedded in their Taiwanese community. Um, and then this, this mainland China piece, you know, and Chinese, and then my, the Chinese I grew up speaking at home, you know, it's like, um, it's more of a Taiwan version of Chinese. So, shi and si, si bu si, shi bu shi, you know, Mandarin with a sure and Taiwan not using that. It, it's been so confusing for me. So even through this podcast and seeing, trying to learn bits and pieces of history and realizing, oh, it's just so complex and there's so many layers. And then what you just described to me, and you probably were the one that pointed it out, on Twitter, but it just was mind blowing to me with the director of Parasite growing up in Korea, growing up in a majority culture Korean and the confidence that he had as he accepted his Academy Award. Um, there's just something about that rootedness that comes from just confidence of knowing who you are, where you're from in a very um, internalized strength. Does that even make sense? And so I feel like as an Asian American, I grew up in Colorado, so 90, 95, 98% white at the time. It was always the sense of wanting to fit in. Nobody looks like me. Um, why do, why do we have all of these, um, you know, just why does my house not look like my neighbor Kathy's down the street? You know, all of that stuff. So um, I think you're hitting on some really key things about the Asian American experience and how it varies and that 1.5 generation in particular. So for you now, do you like read and write Mandarin? Do you dream in Chinese? Like what is your like current brain <laughs> language wise? Yeah, the language piece is really interesting because I think that we associate identity with language, right? So mm-hmm. that, what I said about, I don't speak Taiwanese, how can I identify as Taiwanese? Even though, I mean, a lot of people were forced to speak Mandarin in Taiwan. So obviously that's a Taiwan language as well. So, um, but my my speaking ability, like I don't speak with an accent, I guess an American accent is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can pass, <laughs> but my vocabulary is totally limited because I came when I was five, right? I never went to school in Taiwan. I actually didn't go to Chinese school as a kid. 
So I, I, but I, I read actually really early on um, because I was raised by my grandparents. My grandmother was retired. So I would climb on her lap and she read the newspaper every morning. I would climb on her lap and point to words in the newspaper and ask her to teach me. So I wow. could read um, like newspaper, basic newspaper. So I guess what that would be, what uh, maybe a middle school understanding of reading. Um, mm. So I can recognize characters pretty well um, for someone who's completely unschooled, but I can't write because writing mm -hmm. and reading, it's like you can recognize the Mona Lisa, but you can't draw the Mona Lisa, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I can recognize characters, but I don't have enough under comprehension in my head to actually write it out. So it's mm -hmm. a very weird, it's totally different, right? From the alphabet, right? You learn the alphabet, yeah. you can write it. You can actually read words you don't even understand, right? But in Chinese, mm -hmm. you, you have to understand it if you recognize it. It's, yeah. it's pictorial, right? So it's so it's such a totally different <laughs> system. But um, so yeah, so my language, I can speak, I can understand um, fairly well. I just, you know, I just came back from Taiwan and I, um, I, I can understand if you speak really slowly and clearly, but if you're mumbling, <laughs> I have to like ask people to repeat. But I think that if I were li to live in the country, I could probably pick it up. Mm -hmm. But every time I visit, I'm always surprised at um, how limited my <laughs> comprehension is when it's mm -hmm. like, you know, when you're actually in the country. Uh, but I can read pretty well so I can navigate. Um, so I'm always surprised at how much mm -hmm. I can read and actually recognize mm -hmm. and be able to survive. So it's just, just such a, it's it's just such a different system when you go to an Asian country. Yeah. Um, although I guess yeah. other Asian languages like Korean also it, it's different as well since they have their own alphabet as well. So so I can't mm. you know extrapolate to all Asian countries, but at least Chinese speaking countries, it's a very unique experience. And um, yeah, and so that's that's my kind of relationship with the language. But yeah, but thinking about whether I should identify as Taiwanese American. Uh, I've stopped identifying as Chinese American. <laughs> that's my okay. first step. Okay. I just, I mean, I really do identify as Asian American. Actually, that's really my mm -hmm. my main um, identity because of the political identity of it and wanting to have solidarity mm. with not just East Asians, but South Asians and Southeast Asians, and and you know having that solidarity to advocate for greater representation and greater political power. So, so mm. I feel very comfortable identifying as Asian American, and I yeah. think that's that's basically. Yeah, so whether or not I'm going to evolve into Taiwanese-American, I'm, I'm somewhere in between Chinese-American and Taiwanese-American right now. If you asked me a year ago, I, I would have had a different answer, but I've been really grappling with this recently. So Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you explaining the Asian-American part as well, because I, I have chosen to, to do the same for that reason, as well as the fact that my husband is half Japanese Okinawan, and so Mabuni is an Okinawan last name not African, as some people think. <laughs> and then, um, you know, so my kids are mixed race. And so Asian American seems to encompass so much more. And I, I agree with the solidarity. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So growing up then, you had friends who were, you know, from various ethnic backgrounds. So it wasn't like you were the only Asian. Um, did you go through a period ever where you wanted to like push down the Asian part of you? Did you always feel like this was something, something you were proud of? Or how was that for you? Just, you know, once you learned the language and started getting into life over here. Yeah, so I, I don't think I've ever not been proud of being Asian. Um, but I don't know if I was ever consciously Asian all my life. Or, I mean, I was, I grew up in it 
predominantly Asian American school actually, but we never mm. talked about our identity. Like, I don't even think I spoke Mandarin to my friends who actually could speak Mandarin. We just were so assimilated because that is what U.S. educational public schools are. They're they're institutions for assimilation. Um, I mean, the the curriculum does not have ethnic studies, um, you know, when when I was growing up and it's still most, you know, districts don't. Um, There Mm -hmm. are some districts that are now incorporating it, but this is a fairly recent phenomena, even the whole kind of um, immersion schools is recent, right? It was always Mm -hmm. bilingual education for the purpose of getting you to speak English only. That that was what bilingual education was. Um, And so... I, uh, yeah, but I, I, I wasn't ashamed of being Asian, but I wasn't necessarily proud of it just because we were all trying to assimilate into essentially white culture, mm-hmm. even at all Asian American school, which is what mm-hmm. I pretty much ended up at. And I, I grew up, I moved to Cerritos uh, area and I grew up going to school in Cerritos where I think my graduating class must have been 80%, if not 90% Asian American. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so, so there was no, um, I guess, insecurity about Asia being Asian since the faces were all Asian, but we still didn't see representations of ourselves. I remember, I remember it was a very odd thing when Joy Luck Club came out when we were in high school mm-hmm. and I had, mm-hmm. it was another Asian American friend who said to me, oh, you look like all the Asian women on there. <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> we can't even tell ourselves apart what's going on. Right? <laughs> even then I thought, I thought that's strange. I think, I mean, and partly it's because I think we didn't, I mean, I could tell, you know, I was, I could tell people, I, I even knew that like, oh, they were not even Chinese playing Chinese people, yeah. you know. <laughs> but, but this particular person who was, I'm assuming born and raised she was I think she was she was actually mixed Thai and Chinese and she mm. had I think she has just never seen Asian representation and she looked at me and she's like oh you look like all of them <laughs> mm. so we so that just says something about even if you go to mostly Asian American school your understanding of what being an Asian American is is still lacking mm. we don't mm. we didn't have those conversations um, right. But at least I don't, I don't feel like there was racism in the sense of, you know, kind of people were making fun of my eyes or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was protected from a lot of that kind of overt. Um, and, I, and, and yeah, microaggressions wasn't really a thing. Um, so yeah, so I, I feel very privileged in that. And I think that mm-hmm. I identify as Asian American because Cerritos was very much pan-Asian. Like I had mm-hmm. crush, like I really wanted to go to the prom with a, with a Sri Lankan Muslim kid. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> I had the biggest crush on him. And I never thought, oh, well, he's a different, you know, ethnicity than me, or he's mm. darker skinned than I. Like those were never considerations. It was just whomever was, you know, I found attractive in my school and it was it was it varied right like it was mm. like every ethnicity that was that existed in my school I liked I had a lot of crushes so <laughs> but um and I'm, I'm actually writing a YA novel right now about my crushes so oh I love I, it <laughs> so anyhow but yeah so I think that I definitely grew up Asian American in the sense of my surroundings, I just hadn't identified that way until I think mm. um, maybe even grad school. So even going wow. to UCLA as an undergrad, mm-hmm. I, go, uh, I was an English creative writing major and I didn't mm-hmm. take any, I took one sociology class and that's how I became a sociologist actually. And it was really? because, it was because my very first Asian American woman teacher was a professor, was my sociology professor in undergrad. <gasps> Okay, so unpack that a little bit. That is amazing. Yeah, so I went to school, like I said, with so many Asian Americans, but 
I never had an Asian American woman teacher. Like there was no, there were no, um, there was no, there was no one for me to kind of model myself after really. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of representation. Right. So it was my, um, I transferred to UCLA. I had gone to two other universities because I was, I was a little uh, messed up <laughs> as an undergrad. I was had a lot of trauma actually going into um, college. So I, I, I went to school in Texas and then I transferred back, went to community college and ended up at UCLA. So all those schools, so going to high school, going to elementary school, high school in Southern California, going to college mm-hmm. in Texas and then community college in and undergrad. It wasn't until basically, I think I was a junior in, in mm-hmm. college that I took my first um, class with an Asian American woman. She was Chinese American. Her name is Min. Her name is Minzo, and she, um, yeah, just seeing her. I think that was the moment that I thought I want to be a college professor. Wow. I, I didn't know it then, but looking back, I was like, why did I choose sociology when I actually graduated with English? And it was very difficult actually to go for. And I only took intro to sociology. It's not like I even knew anything else about sociology, but. All of a sudden, I was like, I want to be a sociology professor. And it was wow. totally because my first and only, actually, Asian-American female professor uh, was a sociology professor. Wow. That is, well, that, I mean, to me, that just kind of encapsulates the whole representation matters. And even, I think what you're hitting on, Nancy, with just even the experience of being with majority Asian in high school and then being able to see on screen for the first time or see a professor for the first time to see anyone who looks similar to how you and I look uh, is a game changer. And I think, I think we're always looking. I think we scan the bookshelves. We scan the, the conference brochures. We scan, you know, media looking for representation. And I felt like when Jeremy Lin was in the highlight of his, basketball career, I felt like all Asians held their head up a little high. I remember being in Disneyland and seeing an Asian, I don't know, an Asian Aladdin dancing in the parade or something like that. But I just kind of, it was kind of this this feeling of like, wow. And I felt that at the beginning of this calendar year, honestly, because with Crazy Rich Asians, with Parasite, with um, Sandra Oh, with, I mean, I just felt like there was such a surge in representation with um, Kim's Convenience, to all the boys I've loved before, to uh, the one with Ali Wong and Randall Park, that um, always, be my, always be my maybe. Yes. It just felt like we were kind of moving into a, wow, we're actually seeing normalizing of the Asian American story. We were not doing Kung Fu. We were not the villain. We were not the sidekick for the first time. And then COVID hit <laughs> and then the world shut down. And then the anti-Asian racism came, you know, throttling right back. But um, I would love to hear how you became interested in Hollywood, in pop culture, in representation and all of that. Tell me some of that story. So when I immigrated here, I knew nothing, right, about the United States, actually. There wasn't actually a lot of representations of America that I saw growing up in Taiwan. So I, and I was a, you know, only child and latchkey kid at the time. And I just watched TV. I watched lots and lots of TV. I watched uh, Gilligan's Island. I watched. Oh yeah. I watched I Love Lucy. So there was actually a lot of really old TV, right? Because that's what was on syndication. Mm-hmm. And so I learned about my environment 
through television. And I, I actually was thinking about writing a book about this. Uh, like a me- at one point I thought about writing a memoir through pop culture because I was drawn to a lot of these alien shows. <laughs> I think that was, that was like the only representation of immigrants, right? It was like Mork and wow. Mindy. I was yes. really into Mork and Mindy because, you know, <laughs> Mork was an alien, was an immigrant, right? Alf. Yes. There was actually a lot of these kind of shows, small, uh, out of this world. There were a lot of these alien kids shows. And so I, um, and then there was Perfect Strangers, right? Which was an immigrant. Um, <laughs> it's just like, I mean, the idea of the immigrant was so like, they're so backwards, you know, they're coming here or they're so weird. They're not even of the same species. And so trying to find myself in these shows and, you know, never seeing an Asian on screen, never. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I think but as a 1.5, as an immigrant, it didn't bother me at first, right? Because I was like, well, okay, this is America. America is white, right? This is what I'm thinking. Mm. But then I would go to school and nobody, like, there were hardly any white kids in my school. So there was right. this disconnect. And I think that I was able to critically analyze that when I entered college. And so I was an English major, even though I didn't learn a lot about inequality. We looked at discourse, right? We looked at text. Mm. And so I was interested in representations of Asian Americans, I think very early on. Um, And so, and then when I started to learn sociology, I started to kind of pull things apart and recognize that there are structural and institutional reasons why there are such, uh, there's such a dearth of representation, but also a very skewed representation, right? Mm, And mm. so being able to unpack that uh, as an undergrad and then eventually into grad school, it was, it was a way to kind of, I think, learn more about why I never saw myself on screen, right? right. And, and also to point it out so that I can make a difference, you know, in making sure that it doesn't happen for the next generation. So I'll, not mm. that I'm responsible for crazy rotations or anything, but I like to think that um, it was perfect timing that my book came out, uh, like you said in the introduction, post um, Oscar So White, even though the research had been done starting in the year 2000. Mm. And so... And so, but, you know, but April Rains came up with the hashtag Oscar so white and that just took off. And I think that that, that was kind of the, it was like the movement that like, I feel like is happening right now with BLM, right? With Black Lives mm. Matter back, the, the Oscar so white was the beginnings of um, the, the recognition, not that like Oscar so white, so white was the first time anybody talked about racism in Hollywood. This was, there's been, you know, spurts of conversations, but I think that that was the moment where everybody recognized two years mm-hmm. in a row where, you know, no actor of color wasn't even nominated for any of the awards. So there were, there are 20 slots, right? Between best actor, best actress, best supporting, and none of them, all of them were white for two years in a row, which was it's so funny because I was writing my book and then I was revising it all the way up to year two of Oscar So White. And I remember watching the announcement and I could not believe there was a second year, but then I was thinking, this is perfect for my book. And I, and I added it in, I put Put it in into the introduction. Like I revised mm. that thing all the way, all the way right up to the point of publication, and wow. um, yeah, and so it was, um, it was really um, exciting to know that I could speak into a moment that was that had some momentum, right? That actually yeah. ears were open for the first time to enact change. Yeah, absolutely. This week's did you know is representative was is and will always be important. Did you know that Bella Kwa helped found East West Players in Los Angeles? 
A life led by someone like Bella Kwa has helped pave the way for future Asian American representation in the media and on stage. An advocate for Asian American representation, Kwa also had to face the tension of working in a field that glamorized whiteness while also fighting for representation. Bella Kwa was born in Stockton, California in 1923. A Cal Berkeley and University of Chicago alumni and sociologist by training, Kwa did not start her acting career until she was in her 30s. At the time, she was teaching sociology at Los Angeles Community College after returning from working abroad at a university in China. Her husband and her had been teaching there for a couple years and fled with their newborn after the Communist Party took over. While she was working at LA Community College, a friend referred her to a director, Henry King, who was in need of a dialect coach to teach white actress Jennifer Jones how to speak with a British Chinese accent in the upcoming film, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which, just for you to know, there are some super cringy YouTube trailers. However, King instead casted her in a small role and her acting career took off. As she trained and took on more roles, she became more and more aware of the inequities that Asian American performers faced and the flat, one-sided, stereotypical roles they were being given. In response, she co-founded East West Players in the 1960s, an Asian American theater company that is still thriving to this day. Through East West Players, aspiring actors of color were, and still are, encouraged to explore their talents while portraying multi-dimensional characters. She didn't stop there. Shortly after, in the 70s, she also helped co-found the Association of Asian Pacific American Artists to fight against Asian American stereotyping in the media. Today, East West Players continues the legacy of Bella Kwa and her co-founders as they, quote, inspire and advocate for a world free of racism and discrimination through transformative artistic works, end quote. And that is this week's Did You Know? So from your vantage point, I'm curious how, how do we, how do, how do you think we, the road we need to take to see actual change? Like what are some of the components to, um, to rid ourselves of, I mean, because it it, it runs deep. So I obviously, your answer would be longer than what we're afforded on on our podcast, but I mean, just from the top of your head, what are some of the components needed in order to see actual representation? So I think that solutions have evolved over time, right? I think in my book, I talked a lot about hiring, obviously, um, and even government um, intervention in terms, because you know the the uh, the kind of general networks, the broadcast networks use public airwaves, right? And so the um, the FCC should be able to uh, regulate that. That's not something actually mm-hmm. that even now people talk about enough. So that was something that I, um, I suggested. Also networks having more mentorship and actually having s- slots, right? For, set aside for people of color, whether it's creators, whether it's directors, writers, you know, artists, mm-hmm. um, 
actors and having those slots. So, so, uh, so a system in which not just slots, but also mentorship and guidance so that people can, um, have, uh, not, you know, because a lot of the complaints is like, Oh, people aren't ready. Right. But unless Mm. you actually open the, 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 sorry, unless you actually open opportunities and allow for not just opportunities, but also to gain experience, people are never Mm going to be ready enough. Right. And white actors, especially white male actors or white male creators, um, yeah. get those opportunities in ways mm-hmm. that people of color and women, white women are not able to. Mm-hmm. So if we look at Game of Thrones, right? The, mm-hmm. the showrunners of that show, that was the first time they've ever run a show. It's not like they mm-hmm. had a track record of a success. They just believed in them because the benefit of the doubt is always given to white men yeah. because the idea is that they can be leaders, they can be, you know, just, they're, they're, they come with ability, right? Innate ability, which is, we know, totally racist, sexist idea, right? And right. especially as Asian American women, we know the whole adage that we have to work 10 times as hard in order to gain the same uh, entry, um, which is so true. Right. Like, you know, studies show that women, for women to be hired, they have to actually show experience, whereas men are hired based on their potential, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. And so, yeah, so all those kind of ideas um, have to be set aside and people, people in the industry have to acknowledge that there's been historical biases and therefore they need to open up. And I think that we look mm. at, um, yeah, that behind the scenes is actually, I think, where the change needs to happen because uh, there has been some research on, um, I think, black directors that show that black directors are exponentially more um, open to hiring and actually have shown like the numbers have hired more black actors on their projects than the mm-hmm. white directors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we need people behind the scenes to, to change. And also, yeah, those because we want authentic stories. We don't just want mm-hmm. stories told about Asian Americans that are stereotyped uh, or just people of color that are stereotyped, but we want authentic stories that reflect the experiences of, uh, of that group in a way yeah. that resonates for that group and also maybe written even with the intention of those audiences in mind because I think mm-hmm. that Hollywood has traditionally always had the white audience in mind so that mm-hmm. every group <laughs> that comes in has to cater to the the middle America when it comes right. to television right? Um, right audience and so but we know that that's changing and I think I point that mm-hmm. out in my research in my book that audiences of color um, consume media exponentially higher. Like Latinx yeah. actually are the, are the most regular moviegoers out of all groups. Mm. Um, mm. Asian Americans are streaming higher than any other group. African Americans yeah. watch television more than other group. Um, yeah. and, so, um, and so I think in terms of media consumption, people of color are actually consuming more than half of the media, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so I think that that audience argument is no longer valid. And I think mm-hmm. Hollywood is finally understanding that that to be true. And you can see it in the changes in the last, just the last few years, actually. So right. I, when I revise my, my book, the main revision would be the statistics. Because I think that mm. uh, in terms of percentages, like what you're seeing in terms of Asian American representation, it's changed yeah. quite a bit. It was still actually not there yet in terms of certainly behind the scenes, um, mm-hmm. there's the higher you go in the industry of Hollywood, the more white male it is, which is mm-hmm. probably true for all, but especially in, mm-hmm. in entertainment. Um, and so, and because it's storytelling, 
people mm-hmm. will green light stories that resonate with their lived experience. So if you right. only have white men green lighting yeah. everything, what are the chances they're going to green light something about that is specifically for Asian American women? I mean, they don't know that right. experience. They don't, right. they can't even say whether or not it's going to hit. Maybe they're mm-hmm. even sympathetic, but they, they, they don't even know, you know? And, right. and so, so for example, one of my favorite shows, Pen15, which is on Hulu, mm-hmm. When they shopped it around, they said that a lot of the networks were just uncomfortable with a story about middle school girls talking about how cringy and horrible middle school experiences are. And yeah. so that, I mean, that show is so unique. I mean, it's unique in so many ways because you have 30 some actresses playing teenagers with a teenage cast. It's just so weird, <laughs> but it works, right? It really is probably one of the most authentic things I've seen about, um, about middle schoolers. And we have, uh, you know, a Japanese American mixed race, uh, girl, uh, or woman playing a girl. And she's telling mm. her story and she's cast her, the actress cast her own mom in that role, her own Japanese mother, American wow. mother in the role. And it's just such a cute show, but it was, it was, uniformly like rejected in all these networks because people just didn't get it. White, older white mm-hmm. men just didn't get it. Why would you have yeah. a show about middle school girls, you know, and about them talking about, you know, masturbation or sexuality or things mm-hmm. that were like, or their period. I mean, things that like were just, you know, men don't think about or maybe even want to hear about, right? They're like right. too cringy for them. <laughs> Whereas it's our lived experience. So I think right. that, this shows that we need um, not just creators, but also even, you know, people who are the decision makers, the studio mm-hmm. heads, the, the, the talent agents, everybody, you know, everybody in right. the industry. It is, it's a, it's a pretty um, insular uh, in, the, in the sense of just the, the kind of same kinds of people. And it's mm-hmm. really about social networks in these creative yeah. industries. So, mm-hmm. and we know that through the Pew Center, the, that 90, I think it's 90, white people have 92% white social circles. Um, yeah. Whereas people yeah. of color actually have, by default of being, you know, um, a smaller population in the United States, we have a very diverse group of friends, right? Just, right. just by virtue. We have to have some white friends because they're the majority, right? right? So we right. have more white friends than white people have friends, you know, Asian American friends, like it's mm-hmm. that kind of a, um, a disproportionate representation. And so if we're, if people are hiring their friends, you know, white people are going to hire other white people. So, so things, yeah. so people in decision-making positions in creative positions, all that needs to diversify for storytelling and for, um, for representation in front of the scenes to change. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny because as you were sharing that in my mind's eye, I was picturing all the Saturday Night Live movies, movies of characters that were in Saturday Night Live. And they just invited their friends to be in these shows, in the movies, and then someone else would have a movie, and then they would invite their friends. And that's really that networking that takes place. And when our circles are so small, we only draw from the people that we know. And I think there was something to me that was so significant about John Chu deciding to go Hollywood versus Netflix for Crazy Rich Asians. I thought that that was very intentional to have, you know, this opening in a movie theater all across the country and what that communicates to have a movie done with excellence with the cinematography and the costumes and the music. And it was authentically Singaporean and Chinese and, you know, but it was, it was, it was not um, an Asian, like a, a Asian country B movie. Like it was, 
it was done in a way that felt very Hollywood as far as like, this is an A-list cast, it's A-list everything. Um, and I, I felt like that um, perception is reality in the sense that when we see um, a movie and even the audience, when you have actors and you see um, actual Asian actors in the audience representing like a Sandra Oh sitting in the audience to, to receive an award. I mean, there's just something that, that feels like this is the real, the real thing. So in other words, I'm thinking like Asians weren't around. So we kind of took over YouTube, you know? So it was like, we, we are creative and we have ways that we want to express. And so Wong Fu Productions takes over YouTube and it's got millions of subscribers and, you know, it, and how do we shift that to mainstream? And so what you're talking about, I think, is just that there are so many waiting to be seen to feel like I can do this. I, I could direct, I could act, I could create art and all those places. So, yeah, I think yeah. that what you said about A-list actors, I don't think they were A-list actors before Crazy Rich Asians. Because mm. the the excuse that Hollywood gave to cast Scarlett Johansson as you know a Japanese character in Ghost oh. in the Shell was uh, that there yeah. are was that there were no A list Asian women. Wow, right? And so Hollywood has long given the excuse that there are no A list Asian actors. So therefore, we need to cast white people in Asian roles. They've given that excuse for so long. Whereas you know there are so many movies that make the actor, right? That make the mm-hmm. A-list actor because the movie succeeds, but they did not give that same kind of consideration for Asians. And so it wow. wasn't until Crazy Rich Asians showed that the movie made, cre- Henry Golding was not even an actor before That's right. Crazy Rich Asians. He was Well, he was like a travel host somebody. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they, found him through, they found him through Instagram, right? He was not an actor, wow. but they thought he was so charismatic and that he looked the part, he felt the part. I mean, if you read interviews where he actually wasn't so great in the initial audition, and then I think they told him, you know, just be yourself. And then, mm-hmm. and then he was able to do that and he hit. And now he is an wow. A-list actor, right? He's yeah. been in yeah. several movies since then. I mean, he's probably the most beautiful man that's come along in such a long time <laughs> where lots of people just say he's a beautiful man. They don't say, oh, he's a beautiful mm. Asian man, right? I right. mean, he is, he is mixed, but I mean, he's just, you know people see him as just, yeah, like a kind of gorgeous A-list actor. And I think that that, and and same thing with Constance Wu, um, you know, Gemma Chan, I mean, you know, these, even even the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy O. Yang, like, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Ken, Ken Jeong was already, kind of big before then, but, but it's like, it's like the, the roster of like every, every cool Asian actor was on, was represented on there. And I think that it's exciting. It's exciting. I think that fresh off the boat also, you know, before, mm-hmm. even before Crazy Rich Asians kind of broke the mold um, because there hadn't been an Asian American sitcom, family sitcom since Margaret Cho's All American Girl, which was 20 years prior. I mean, right. I wrote an article about how an entire generation missed seeing anybody that looked like themselves on, on TV yeah. or film because prior to Crazy Rich Asians, the, the last East Asian cast was uh, Joy Luck Club, which was when I was in high school, right? Wow. Which, is, which was 25 years. So right. th- this is right. entire generations that grew up not seeing themselves. But then, like you said, maybe they saw themselves through YouTube. 
right? So mm-hmm. there, there were, it's like, it's like you can't keep Asian, <laughs> Asian voices down, right? It's right, like we had to right. find our way somewhere. And there were cer- certainly lots of independent films during that time. I mean, you know, Better Luck Tomorrow kind of was mm. the, the, the indie breakout um, film. But, you know, I, I mean, I just think like if it happened now, it would be so big, right? It was right. big within the community, but I don't think a lot of people, because, it, it, you know, MTV bought it. We're like, oh my gosh, the mainstream. Right, I mean, MTV right. now sounds like small. <laughs> small. Like what? <laughs> MTV? I mean... <laughs> But back then it was like, oh my gosh, it wasn't just like, you know, distributed through, you know, an Asian film festival. It was right. Sundance, right? It was Sundance. Right. And, and so, yeah, I think that now, I, I, I remember when I started on Twitter in 2013, like I would have to tweet out like, you know, all about people of color, of, you know, all, all groups, right? But nowadays mm-hmm. I just, there's just, there's too much, just Asians, mm. Now I can just spend all my time tweeting out new announcements where, you know, Kelly Marie Tran is now in a new Hulu series. You know, every single day there's something coming Mm. out about Asian Americans. And that is such a huge difference from just 2013 when I couldn't do that. There wasn't enough. You know, really Mm. crazy rich Asians did open um, the opportunities for more representation. I mean, I, I like to see... Um, representations of uh, Asian Americans of all socioeconomic classes, of right. all different backgrounds, especially Southeast Asian. I mean, that's why when, you know, when Kelly Marie Tran, you know, we have Vietnamese mm. representation, Vietnamese American representation, and and more South Asian representation. And so, yeah. um, and so it's, uh, it's exciting though. It's exciting because it's definitely, it's a different conversation altogether now than we would have mm-hmm. had, you know, 25 years ago. And so, um, we still have a ways to go, you know, we're not, we're not, mm-hmm. we don't have all groups represented yet. It's not like we have the full beauty and variety of Asian America, um, which is yeah. probably the most diverse population out of all the racial ethnic groups, right. Uh, mm. On the census, because we don't even share the same languages, um, right. his, our history. Sometimes we hate each other back in the, mm-hmm. back yeah. in the motherland. And For so sure. there, there's a lot of, there's so much diversity. And so I think the fact that we have any kind of solidarity when it comes to representation, I think growing now, um, is, is pretty astonishing actually. Yeah, I do. I agree. I, I'll be excited for people to keep following you and to keep seeing how this all unfolds in the coming years, because if it grows exponentially, we will actually see a new day. And so I do think it has everything to do with box office tickets sold, you know, as far as a a resounding, yes, we want more. Um, I think being able to, um, I, I, I see your leadership as one where you are, putting it out there like, hey, everyone, let's rally. And that it makes a difference. It absolutely makes a difference. So speaking of leadership, I would love for you to share any principles of leadership that you kind of govern your life by, uh, that you consider maybe a North Star for yourself or just what you hope to be um, as a leader. How would you either counsel your a younger a younger Nancy or just this up and coming generation, what would be some advice on leadership? So I think that for Asian Americans, don't think that there's only one type of leadership or think that, you know, the whole kind of idea of, yes, we are more communal and not Mm -hmm. less individual, but 
sometimes I feel like we box ourselves in, in, ter- in terms of, oh, you know, we, we lead more, more communally and more corporally, meaning we don't speak up as much or we're only looking for peace or, you know, we're only peacemakers. Because mm. I, I don't, whenever I hear that, I'm like, well, I'm, I don't think of myself as a peacemaker. I think of mm-hmm. myself more as a prophet. Um, yeah. I, I speak more truth to, in ways that people don't always accept. Um, I think yeah. I do it in a way. So this is where I think, um, I, I don't know if it's, it's my Asian-ness. I mean, I, everything I do, I guess is Asian because I am Asian, but, uh, but I don't want to, again, I don't want to label, like I just got through saying that we're the most diverse group ever. So I don't think that there's one way to do it, but I do think that I, I try to, um, you know, communicate um, in ways that aren't um, accusatory, right? I try mm. to communicate truth uh, I don't, I don't water it down necessarily. Yeah. So I'm not afraid yeah. of um, hurting feelings, but I yeah. don't do it in a way where I feel like is um, necessarily trying to make people feel bad for the sake of feeling bad. Right. Mm. I, 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 because as a sociologist, I talk about systems. So I, yeah. I remember when I first started teaching about racism, I always have white students coming up to me and saying, but I'm not racist. Right. right. So I right. say, well, I mean, actually, we're all racist, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm actually talking about systems. I'm not talking about we all have responsibility, right? But yeah. we're all part of the system, and I think that honestly, we all have biases, right? But it isn't mm-hmm. about um, individuals because if it's just about individuals, then we're actually not going to change anything, right? right? So I think that we actually have to advocate for 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 systemic change for mm-hmm. things that, like you know, the the kind of what I explained about hiring, right? Where people yeah. are, you have to open up spaces for groups that have been traditionally excluded, right? So that's a systemic mm-hmm. change, right? Not just yep. kind of like, you know, are you racist or are you not? Because that that conversation is actually what shuts down progress. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if we acknowledge that we're all swimming in a culture, in the waters of racism, that we none of us are, are exempt, right, from right. having racial biases. Like what I said, even though I grew up with Asian Americans, we were all assimilating into dominant culture, right? Into mm-hmm. a kind of... Uh, really white supremacy, right? Really, yeah. because that is the culture that where it says that, you know, um, the default hero is the white man. Like they, these mm-hmm. are accepted ideas, right? And so, and so we, we all kind of believe that growing up and it takes um, a kind of dismantling and critical thinking for all of us to, to acknowledge that things haven't been fair and that mm-hmm. we all have to work towards that. So, so I think that I'm, I'm definitely a truth sayer but I do it in a way that's really helping people see the big picture and not yeah. really about, um, you know, um, just like, you know, I, I, I think that actually, you know, calling people out and counseling things are, are consequences for, I think, what people have gotten away with in a racist system. Mm. So I'm not saying that we need to not have counsel culture, but I do think that as individually, I try not to um, create, I, I try not to kind of, play into emotional, individual kind of um, fights, you know, that, mm-hmm. that really, mm-hmm. it's so easy to kind of just be like, you're mean, you know, or you're, you're calling me a racist and I'm not mean. Um, right, these kind of right. very superficial understandings, right? Which I think mm-hmm. everybody's caught up in. 
right? I yeah. don't think people really understand what racism is. And right. so I try to eliminate and I try to cite data as a sociologist. I rely on data. I rely on mm-hmm. facts. Of course, not everybody accepts facts, right? If it doesn't agree with um, their ideology. So we're in a place where it's really hard <laughs> to, yeah. to be like, well, this is what the statistics are. And the people are like, well, I don't care. Right. Right, And so, and so, but I still push for that because, you know, as a social scientist, I I like to think that we, we have to have something that we need to, you know, look at and examine and be able to state as truth. So, Mm. so yeah, so that's the kind of um, leadership in terms of my, my area of expertise, which is Mm -hmm. talking about racism and getting people to understand why we need to, to make changes and how we can all be a part of that change, right? So to also give hope, I guess, as a leader, that yeah. all of us have agency, that if you have privilege, then use that privilege instead of mm. denying that privilege, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know? So, so all of us, you know, probably have privileges and areas of lack of privilege. And, and you know, I've done those privilege walk with students and nobody likes being in the back of the line. So it's right. like when, when people who are more, you know, who are against the kind of progressive movement towards justice, they're like, well, you know, you're just like victim mentality. Nobody wants to be a victim. I mean, Mm-mm. only privileged people say that because my, my, my black and brown students and myself, actually, we did the privilege walk when I also ended up in the back with them. And this, this comes back to the whole immigrant part, you know, that immigrants actually lack a lot of privilege because we don't have access to language. We don't have access to, to a lot of the resources because our parents have no idea what's going on. So I grew up with no books in the house. Like that was one of the privileged Mm -hmm. questions. You know, you grew up with more than 40 books. I had zero books in the house. My dad told me not to read, you know, he was Mm -hmm. anti-intellectual actually in so many ways. He was just here to survive, right. Just to make money survive. What, you know, being able to read and draw and all that stuff, those are luxuries that he didn't think were necessary in the house. Right. So, so yeah, so like nobody, like most people who are actually lack privilege don't want to be victims. We don't want to right. be that, right? And so I think yeah. that's, a, that's a misunderstanding of, of a call for justice, right? It's, mm. it's saying that like, hey, we're trying our best, but we still can't get there because of barriers that are outside of our control. Right. So, right. so yeah, so I really, um, I'm sorry, I'm, you're, you're asking me for leadership and I'm giving you a lesson on, <laughs> on how to talk about racism. <laughs> But this is the ways I talk about it. This is the ways I talk about it. This is the ways Mm -hmm. I, uh, these are strategies that I use in order to get through to a larger population about something that's very, very hard to hear um, and very, very difficult to talk about. I don't, so I guess being courageous is actually, and and believing in yourself and believing in the truth, right? So Mm. if you don't know, acknowledge that you don't know. Because I think yeah. that that was one thing that I learned um, early on when I taught, when I, in my, the first class I taught on my own at UCLA as a grad student, I was teaching undergrads and I told them that, hey, this stuff is hard for me too. You know, mm. I struggled with this too. And I remember mm. one undergrad student saying to me, like, thank you so much for saying that because that made me want to continue to struggle. Yeah. Because if yeah. even you're struggling, that means that when I'm struggling, it's not because I'm dumb or I'm, you know, I don't right. understand. It's because that I know it's just part of the process of learning. So yeah. being vulnerable, being willing to, you know, um, admit that you don't know or admit that you're wrong. I think that's, that's what I look for in a leader as well. Because I can't yeah. stand it when people pretend or posture or you know are are are, are un, unwilling to um, to listen. Those are mm-hmm. those are all things that I think are annoying to me, and, and I don't want to follow anyone who's like that. So yeah. I try to really um, 
even though, you know, I have a PhD, I don't lord that over people, even though mm-hmm. I have knowledge, I, I, there's always, you know, there's always room to grow and always room to learn. I learn from young people, you know, because mm-hmm. ways of fighting racism changes generationally, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. People who were doing that work, you know, decades ago can learn from people who are doing it now. And yeah. so I'm listening when people talk about cancel culture, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I also listening to Obama who said, don't do cancel culture. Like I'm hearing all these sides yeah. and, and, and understanding that there's difference and understanding if I feel resistant, is it because um, of pride or is it because like uh, there's actually validity in that resistance, right? So, so mm. really being very introspective and reflexive and not, um, not dismissing young people because I do feel like, um, you know, they're living it, they're in the trenches, right? And, yeah. and, they have, and they're growing up in a different time where like all the things that we were talking about, like not seeing ourselves, they're mm-hmm. seeing themselves now, right? Yeah. But they're yeah. pushing, they're like all the critiques mm-hmm. of Crazy Rich Asians. I was fascinated by that, yeah. right? There yeah. was so much dialogue within the community and I actually welcomed all of it because mm-hmm. we do need to think about how maybe Crazy Rich Asians is problematic, right? right. And how right. and how we, and there, I mean, there's academic critiques about how, why are we supporting something that, you know, that is, that? why do we support something only for the sake of opening doors, right? Should mm. we do that? Isn't that compromising what we want? So I love it all. <laughs> I love yeah, it all. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally, so this is the problem of our society right now. It's like, it's just so polarized, but I actually want, I mean, unless it's, unless you're actually, you know, racist and are, are denying my right to exist, that I don't want to hear, <laughs> Right. Right, I, right. I do draw a line. I believe in free speech, but I don't believe in hate speech. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, listening, listening to uh, on the spectrum of how to fight racism or how to do things. I think, um, yeah, I, I just, I welcome the dialogue. Um, and I don't think that we should dismiss, uh, you know, dismiss just because we disagree. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I. That's so good. I, I appreciate that, Nancy, because I think that really quickly, we fall into different camps and we are unable to hear one another. And even for those I vehemently disagree with, there are still things that I can be learning. And it's in that civility of what you're talking about, like really being able to have a, a humility and a, and a vulnerability and a teachability in the midst of very divisive topics. Um, it's just, I think that is a mark of maturity. Um, and uh, and that's not always an age thing, unfortunately. So I appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to turn the corner to something really light and fun. <laughs> but on our podcast, I always like to ask our guests, what is your favorite Asian comfort food? So I have been watching all these people making bread, right? <laughs> Sourdough bread, all these like interesting. So I have been making tongyo bing, which is scallion pancake. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I love, I love, love, love it. My grandmother made it when I was growing up, mm-hmm. although she didn't make it that great. I have to say <laughs> she made like a <laughs> kind of like a pancake version because she was like, you know, she would take shortcuts once in a while. She would make the rollout version, but I don't think she put mm-hmm. enough. Um, I don't know. Maybe she didn't let it rise or something. So thank God for the internet. So I've been making like uh scallion pancakes and, and you have to let it like rise, right? You have to actually oh. read the dough and let it rise. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and even, even though it's unleavened, and so I've been making it and it's my comfort food. It's my version of making bread is making yes. scallion pancakes. So I am really, um, I love scallion pancakes. I love the, the oil. Um, and oh, there's 
my family's talking. <laughs> Let me come back. I'm going to close the door. <laughs> Aaron, we'll just cut this part while um, Nancy's closing her door. You guys, can you guys keep it down? I'm, I'm, I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> Welcome to life. If it's yes, not a anyway, cat, so, it's a family. Yes, yes. Okay, so scallion, beans, yes. scallion pancakes. It's, yeah. uh, um, I love the crispiness, the layers, the, the mm. salty, the, the, the little punch of the scallions. Mm. And I could eat that by itself like forever. I just love, I love, I love it. it. And um, yeah, so that's, that's not, it hasn't always been my comfort food, but for some reason, like I think fried carbs <laughs> and also, and also the satisfaction of making something that I know is part of my culture that mm. is a little bit harder than kind of just, you know, making fried rice or something, right? but, right. but not too hard where it's like, I'm not going to go, <laughs> I, you know, I've been thinking about making zongzi, uh, which oh, is the, the bamboo oh wrapped God, rice. Yes. yes. My grandmother made that. She never taught me. She made the best, right. but she never taught me. Yeah. And it looks way harder than I can handle oh, right now no. because you have to like boil it for like hours and it's like yes. putting raw rice in bamboo. I mean, that is like... And the twine and like the time. Yes, and, well, and then you like, have to make oh, the pork beforehand. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> it's multi... It's a whole thing. It's, it's a, whole a whole thing. thing. And so I'm not... Mm-hmm. Ready. I, I, my, I do have a quarantine goal that maybe I will tackle it because I've also been making... Um, dumplings from scratch. I haven't been rolling out the wow. scratch. And I actually, I, I cannot fry pot stickers for the life of me, but I decided mm-hmm. that I was going to try and I, I documented it on uh, social media. So I was <laughs> finally able to do it. Uh, it took oh, me so wow. many times. I mean, Chinese food is really hard to make. It mm-hmm. is really hard to make well. Like, yeah, I, yeah. it's no joke. Even the it simplest is. things, right? Yeah. Like you think about Taiwanese breakfast, like Salve oh. Yotel, like that stuff oh, is like, yotel. that's not easy. That's like, so hard. Who's yeah. going to make soybean milk from scratch? Like that stuff is like, the, it's the, the simplest quote unquote peasant food or, you know, yeah. person food. Like that stuff is like, it's, it's to make it well, because it is so simple. It takes mm-hmm. skill and practice, right? And yeah. also, patience. So in our, <laughs> I mean, I think that's what the quarantine time, the pandemic time has really helped everybody slow down so that, mm. I mean, all these people, I mean, bread is like, so like, you know, you got to watch it rise. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I think that, um, yeah, so my comfort food, um, I've been making lots of traditional Chinese foods just to, um, just to try. Some of them have been successful, some of them not, but, um, Okay, I'm actually, my, my stomach is growling as I'm talking. I know, yeah, I know. We're just like, <laughs> we just need to have less I'm so already. hungry. Oh, I'm so hungry. I love those fried, fried carbs. <laughs> oh, okay. Now I'm all inspired. So, okay, well, how can people find you um, to just track with you? What, how would, yes, tell us your, your handles and how people can find you. Yeah, so I am... I pretty much, especially during pandemic and living on Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think I exist more virtually than I do in real life. So I'm <laughs> on Twitter. You can find me at Nancy W Y U E N, Nancy W Y U E N. That's on Twitter, and it's actually the same handle on Instagram. But I, uh, I haven't figured out Instagram. <laughs> I haven't figured that one out yet. I don't. I don't quite. Quite. I don't. I haven't 
really, you know, mastered that one yet, but I think I'm pretty happy on Twitter. I, I feel like it's, so this goes back to my, um, my creative writing days. I was a creative writing poetry major and I think oh. the, the best tweets, cause it's a, it's a constraint, right? There's the, mm-hmm. there's, there's limited characters and then you can put mm-hmm. maybe a photo or not. I love actually the constraint of Twitter that allows mm. me to be creative. I think the best tweets are poetry um, mm, mm. consider poetry. So, so I really, I mean, I don't think people think of Twitter that way, but I've always considered it that way. Um, oh, so. that's actually really helpful because I find that most people have, um, one social media platform that they kind of lean toward for various reasons. So I find Twitter extremely, um, uh, not challenging, um, intimidating because to me, for that very reason, like wordsmiths who can just throw it down in however many characters and just uh, create that succinct, packed, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda type of like, mm, I admire it, but it intimidates me. So, but to see it as poetry, I love that. I think that that's a really beautiful way of expression again. I think for me, and what i observed about you is that you interact with people and you welcome there's a community sense as you tweet um it's not just throwing something out and then running away you actually engage with people even people who disagree with you you are gracious but truth-telling kind of what you just described with leadership i've seen that with you so i'm more of like a like a go to twitter and see what's going on and learn news (laughs) in real time like the earthquake, where did it happen? I can find it on Twitter immediately. Um, but I'm more of an Instagram person just because it's, it seems less hostile on Instagram. <laughs> and so the uh, peacemaking part of me just finds it to be a little bit more palatable that way. But I, I have such high respect for those who, are, who handle Twitter well. And I consider you one of those women. So thank you for for uh, your example and your, I, I'm now knowing this poetry background piece of you, it just gives so much more context. So I can appreciate it even more. So, so very fun. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for taking time in the midst of quarantine to share your experience and your, um, your knowledge, your, your perspectives, all of it has just been so rich. I believe the someday is here. Um, community will really benefit so much from all you've shared. So thanks for taking time to be with us. Thanks for inviting me and, uh, and chatting with me when I have no adult conversations, really, hardly at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I know. We're all missing that right now. We're all missing that. So, well, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to um, having you be introduced to our little sisterhood there. So thanks. Well, this has been such a robust conversation. I want to encourage you to go and follow Nancy on Twitter, learn more about her work. Uh, One of her greatest achievements is being part of the PBS um, Asian Americans uh, DVD set, which is um, an incredible five-part documentary series tracing Asian Americans spanning 150 years of immigration. And 
this resource was created by Asian Americans for Asian Americans and led by Asian Americans. And Nancy shared with me that's one of her proudest moments. And so I want to encourage you to look that up, PBS Asian Americans. I've mentioned it before in previous episodes, but this is a great resource for you to get your hands on. So look for her book, Real Inequality and the Asian Americans uh, PBS documentary. And I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thanks again for being so supportive and sharing these episodes with your friends, for subscribing and reviewing. All of it is helpful in helping others find this podcast. So we're grateful for you and hope you have a great week. Thank you for joining us this week. As always, we appreciate your feedback and invite you to subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast to help others find this show. The outstanding team that makes Some Days Here possible is composed of an incredible group of men and women. The Some Days Here logo and graphics are designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Production. The show notes and quotes are compiled by Vicki Fan. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The Did You Know section is researched and written by Elise Izumi. The creative design and website designer is Kenny Wong, and the executive producer is Chantel Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to bringing you another episode of Sunday is Here next week.